Chapter 36 of Crips the Carrier by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 36 May Morn. It was the morn when the tall and shapely tower of Magdalen is crowned with a fillet of shining white, awaiting the first step of sunrise. Once a year, for generations, this has been the sign of it eager eyes and gaping mouths, little knuckles blue with cold and clumsy little feet inclined to slide upon the slippery lead, all are bound to keep together for the radiant moment, all are a little elated at their height above all other boys, all have a strong idea that the sun, when he comes, will be full of them, and every one of them longs to be back beneath his mother's blankets. It is a tradition with this choir, handed or chanted down from very ancient choral ancestry, that the sun never rises on May Day without iced dew to glance upon. Scientific record here comes in to prop tradition. The icy saints may be going by, but they leave their breath behind them. And the poets, who have sent forth their maids to gather the dews of May, knew and meant that dew must freeze to stand that operation. But though the sky was bright and the dew lay sparkling for the maidens, the frost on this particular morning was not so keen as usual. The trees that took the early light, more chaste without the yellow ray, glistened rather with a soft moisture than with stiff encrustment, and sprays that kept their sally into fickle air half-latent showed only little scalloped crinkles with a knob in them, held in every downy quillet liquid rather than solid gem. Christopher Sharp, looking none the worse for his excellent supper of last night, laid his fattish elbow on the parapet of the bridge and mused. Poetical feeling had fetched him out, thus early in the morning, to hear the choir salute the sun, and to be moved with sympathy. The moon is the proper deity of all true lovers, and has them under good command when she pleases, but for half the weeks of a month she declines to sit in the court of lunacy at least as regards this earth, having her own men and women to attend to. This young man knew that she could not be found, and with a view to meditation now, and his mind relapsed to the sun, a coarse power, poetical only when he sets and rises, with strength and command of the work of men, leaving their dreams to his sister, the sun leapt up with a shake of his brow and scattering of the dew-clouds, the gates of the east swung right and left, so that tall trees on a hill seemed less than reeds in the rush of glory, and lines, like the spread of a crystal fan, trembled along lowland. Inlets now and lanes of vision, scarcely opened yesterday and closed perhaps tomorrow, guided shafts of light along the level, widening ways they love. Tree and tower, hill and wall, and water and broad meadow stood or lay or leaned, according to the stamps set on them, one and all receiving, sharing, and rejoicing in the day. Between the battlements and above them burst and rose the choral hymn, and as the laws of sound compelled it to go upward mainly, the part that came down was pleasing. Christopher, seeing but little of the boys and not hearing very much, was almost unable to regard the whole as a vocal effort of the angels, and thus in solemn thought he wandered as far as the high-tolled turnpike gate. I will he me to Cowley, 
said he to himself, instead of turning back again. There will I probe the hidden import of impending destiny. This long and dark suspense is more than can be brooked by human power. I know a jolly gypsy woman, and if I went home I should have to wait three hours for my breakfast. With these words he felt in the pockets of his coat to be sure that the oracular cash was there and found a silk purse with more money than usual, stored for the purchase of a dog called Pablo, a hero among badgers. What is Pablo to me or I to Pablo? He muttered with a smothered sigh. She told me she thought it a cruel and cowardly thing to kill fifty rats in five minutes. Nevermore, alas, nevermore. With a resolute step but a clouded brow, he buttoned his coat and strode onward. Now, if he'd been in a fit state of mind for looking about him, he might have found a thousand things worth looking at, but none of them in his present hurry. One from him either glimpse or thought. He trudged along the broad London road at a good brisk rate, while the sun glanced over the highlands, and the dewy ridges away on the left towards Shotover. The noble city behind him stretched its rising sweep of tower and spire and dome and serried battlement, stately among ancient trees, and rich with more than mere external glory to an Englishman and away to the right hand sloped in broad meadows green with spring and fluttered with the pearly hyaline of dew, lifting pillars of dark willow in the distance, where the Isis ran. But what are these things to a lover unless they hit the moment's mood? A fair, unfenced, free-landscaped road for him might just as well have been bottled like a skittle alley and roofed with Croggan's patent felt, at certain, or rather uncertain, moments he might have rejoiced in the wide, glad heart of nature spread to welcome him, and must have felt, as lovers feel, the ravishment of beauty. It happened, however, that his eyes were open to nothing above, or around, or before him, unless it should present itself in the image of a gypsy's tent. He turned to the left before the road entered the new enclosures toward Ifley and trod his own track towards Cowley Marsh. The crisp dew brushed by his hasty feet, ran into large globes behind him, and jerks of dust brought up by pleasure, fell and curdled on them. In the haze of the morning he looked much larger than he had any right to seem, and the shadow of his arms and hat stretched into hollow places. There was no other moving figure to be seen except from time to time of a creature, the colonist of commons, whose mental frame was not so unlike his own just now as bodily form and style of walking might and misty grandeur seem. Though Kit was not such a stupid fellow when free from his present bewitchment, scant of patience he came to a place where the elbow of a hedge jutted forth upon the common, a mighty hedge of beetling brows, and overhanging shagginess, and shelfy curves, and brambly depths, and true Devonian amplitude. High farming would have swept it down, and out of its long course ploughed an acre. Young Sharp had not traced its windings far, before he came upon a tidy-looking tent, pitched with the judgment of experience in a snug and sheltered spot. The rest of the camp might be seen in the distance glistening in the sunrise. This tent seemed to have crept away for the sake of peace and privacy. 
Christopher quickened his steps, expecting to be met by a host of children, rushing forth with outstretched hands and shaggy hair and wild black eyes, but there was not so much as a child to be seen, nor the curling smoke of a hedge-trough fire, nor even the scattered ash betokening cookery of the night before. The canvas of the tent was down, no head peeped forth, no naked leg or grimy foot protruded to show that the inner world was sleeping, even the dog, so rarely absent, seemed to be really absent now. The young man knew that the tent was not very likely to be unoccupied, but naturally he did not like to peep into it uninvited. He turned away to visit the chief community of rovers, when the sound of a low, soft moan recalled him. Still for a moment he hesitated until he heard the like sound again, low and clear and musical from the deepest chords of sorrow. Kit felt sure that it must be a woman, in storms of trouble and helpless, and full as he was of his own affairs, he was impelled to interfere. So he lifted back the canvas drawn across the opening and looked in. There lay a woman on the sandy ground with her back turned towards the light and her neck and shoulders a little raised by the short support of one elbow, and her head, and all that therein was, fixed a rigor of gazing. Although her face was not to be seen, and the hopeless moan of her wail had ceased, Kit Sharp knew that he was in the presence of a grand and long-abiding woe. He drew back, and he tried to make out what it was and he sighed for concert, even as a young dog whimpers to a mother who has lost her pups, and little as he knew of women, from his own mother, or whether or no, he judged that this woman had lost a child, that it was her only one, and more than he could tell or guess. The woman, disturbed by the change of light, turned round and steadily gazed at him, or rather at the opening which he filled, for her eyes had no perception of him, Kit was so scared that he jerked his head back and nearly knocked his hat off. He never had seen such a thing before, and if he had his choice, he never would see such a thing again. The great, dark, hollow eyes had lost similitude of human eyes. Hope and fear and thought were gone. Nothing remained but desolation and bare, reckless misery. Christopher's gaze fell under hers, it would be a sheer impertinence to lay his small troubles before such a woe. "'What is it? Oh, what is it?' asked the woman at last, having some idea that somebody was near her. "'I'm very sorry, I assure you, ma'am, that I never felt more sorry in all my life,' said Kit, who was a very kind-hearted fellow, and now espied a small boy lying dead. "'I give you my word of honour, ma'am,' that if I could have guessed it, I would never have looked in. Without any answer, the gypsy woman turned again to her dead child and took two little hands in hers and rubbed them and sat up imagining that she felt some sign of life. She drew the little boy to her breast and laid the face to hers and breathed into pale open lips, scarcely fallen into death, and lifted the little eyelids with her tongue and would not be convinced that no light came in from under them. And then she rubbed again at every place where any warmth or polish of skin yet lingered. She fancies that she felt the little fellow coming back to her, and she kept the whole of her own body moving to encourage him. There was nothing to encourage. He had breathed his latest breath. 
His mother might go on with kisses, friction, and caresses, with every power she possessed of muscle and lungs and brain and heart. There he lay as dead as a stone, one stone more on the earth, and the whole earth could not bring him back again. Cinnaminta bowed her head. She laid a little bit of all she ever loved upon her lap and fetched the small arms so that she could hold them both together and spread the careless face upon the breast where once it had felt its way. And then she looking up in search of Kit or anyone to say something to. It is just the thing. I have earned it. I have robbed an old man of his only child, and I am robbed of mine. These words she spoke not in her own language, but in plain good English. And then she lay down in her quiet scoop of sand, and folded her little boy in with her. Christopher saw that there was nothing to be done. He cared to go no further in search of fortune-tellers, and being too young to dare to offer worthless consolation, he wisely resolved to go home and have fried bacon, wherein he succeeded. End of chapter 36